Please be seated. Walter Wink, who died about 10 years ago, was an American biblical scholar, theologian, and activist who is recognized as an important figure in progressive Christianity. <clears throat> Pardon me. In his later works, he explores what it means to be human, going so far as to suggest a kind of porosity between human experience and that of the divine. Professor Wink is famously provocative for floating ideas like this, and I paraphrase, only God is truly human, and we, the people of the world, <clears throat> can only attain to the fullest expression of humanness by demonstrating qualities and attributes once thought solely divine. I confess that for me, this opened a new door onto our text tonight. And the sign on that door read something like this, level playing field, enter here. <laughs> My feelings were strengthened as to how the entire Christ event is in many ways about leveling the playing field shared by us and God, which sounds so obvious in the abstract. So for now, I'd like to look at how it can play out in real time and the role glory or glorification plays. Note that this evening's gospel citation shows a gap of about 14 verses. Verses where Jesus shares how his spirit is troubled because one of the disciples will betray him. We see their confusion and consternation in response. We're privy to Peter's catching John's eye and asking him to find out who the betrayer is. And we see how Jesus answers by feeding Judas from his own hand and then invites him to put the final wheel in motion that will bring about the passion, crucifixion, resurrection, and indeed Jesus's ascension. Judas takes the bread and exits into the darkness, at which point Jesus says, now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. Using this version of the text, I've been quite comfortable interpreting glory as having to do with Jesus' volition in that moment, that he chose to submit, note that word, to God's purpose, even though it meant unspeakable pain on several levels. This I have felt, and for a long time, is the meaning of glorification. I find now, however, there's even more to it. When I first read the text as it appears tonight, I felt a little like the rug had been pulled out from under me. But 
it quickly became clear that the now statement is meant to have layers of significance. This now declaration, utterly apt as regards Jesus' volition, also beautifully and powerfully accommodates our text, a version that holds the ultra-resonant notion of volition gently to one side as genuine demonstration in real time of a leveled playing field having just taken place is pointedly affirmed. Speaking of level playing fields, blessed Maya Angelou, who one might legitimately say has been beatified by acclamation in the spiritual porosity that exists where human and divine meet, well, she's credited with saying this, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. It's like she gets Jesus. I can totally see her playing the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Can't you just hear her voice in that conversation? We talked about that scene a couple of weeks ago and how Jesus had made that woman feel and how her feelings were involved and he knew it as she got inspired to know him more deeply, and not only that, to bring others from her community into the mix of love and spirit, into that porous place where human meets divine. And we wondered if that didn't have an awful lot to do with how to embody loving a neighbor. Tonight's scene is quite a bit later in the story. But Jesus is still doing what he does. Can you imagine how the disciples must have felt as they all sat down together at table? Throughout even John's gospel, there's no shortage of kingly expectations among them. Such was the understanding they shared about what Messiah should represent. Add to that three years of signs and wonders, and it's not hard to imagine that in the upper room that night, during their last supper together, there could have been some pretty stubborn vestiges of hope among the bros for a hat trick, a surprise show of clout. But instead, during the supper, and rather in keeping with his proclivity toward the arresting language he so often uses to give pause, Jesus proceeds to perform an act that is entirely out of keeping with socially accepted power dynamics. He does what a slave would do. We have an idea of what Peter was feeling, but imagine Simon or Bartholomew or Thaddeus, what they must have felt. It's probably safe to say that they held Jesus in an esteem higher than any other person they'd ever known. And that they may have been shocked and even disappointed at first as he began to wash their feet. But can you also sense how they may have softened into being utterly and completely moved by thoughts of grace? moved by their own actual experience of that liminal place where the human and divine meet. Could they have been filled with tenderness and wonder 
and exquisite love in the knowledge, in the demonstration that their cherished master of all people, but of course all people, should be the one to create this place of breathtaking beauty and care. Care for me as a parting gift. The parting gift of a doorway or, or a window onto the aftertimes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus seems to take every opportunity to fill his clumsy little disciples. They're like puppies, don't you think? With tons of love. And that in itself might be enough to make his washing their feet a good thing. But Walter Wink also suggests, and with great clarity and power, that as long as the disciples were enthralled by Jesus' powers, they'd never be able to find those powers in themselves. Which kind of indicates that this foot washing thing had levels of significance not the least of which was as a gateway onto the awe-inducing cluster of steadily worsening shocks to their system, both in terms of socially accepted power dynamics as well as their internal experiences and expectations. But don't let's get too far ahead of ourselves. It is good for us to be here. Good Friday will come, and so will all the rest. Maybe we can let it be enough for right now to abide in how the disciples may have felt, cherished, cared for, brought to a new level in relation to God. Some of them may have even caught on by this point to how Jesus is modeling for them. They may well have begun to see themselves as servants in the aftertimes. They may even have been growing in understanding of what it means to inhabit a level playing field with God. Understand what it means to be human the way God is human according to Walter Wink. Understand what glory means according to John. A few minutes ago, I made a quick reference to Jesus' submission to God's purpose when he sent Judas to do what he had to do. How through his own volition, he put the wheels in motion for this, for his horrific earthly end. It's helpful to notice the emotional charge of the word submit or the word submission. Because on our level playing field, they are linked with the words glory and glorification. This is so because the emotional charge in submit and submission is completely diffused when we realize that when Jesus submits, he does so entirely without fear. No fear of pain, no fear of the loss of power or love, no loss of any quality or attribute that is not in full alignment with God and God's loving care. What we can experience in relation to the concepts of glory and glorification, and it is all about our personal experience, is deeper knowledge. We can experience deeper knowledge, deeper relationship and fearlessness in all our actions that are meant to comply 
with his words, you should do as I've done to you. Deeper knowledge, deeper relationship, deeper love. And maybe the best part of tonight's story is that as Jesus acts the servant, he's drawing his friends into an immensely resonant incarnational experience of receiving love from God, which may be the first step toward living as permanently as Jesus did in that place of fearlessness, the place, I suspect, of true glory. Now, now you have before you two opportunities to experience such resonances. If you are so moved, come in your now to have your feet washed. And as you do, notice what is present. See if there is cherishing and wonder and exquisite love. And then do the same with the Eucharist. Notice what you now bring with you and what you find. It's a question for all of us. My, my dearest clergy sisters, <laughs> as you and I, as we all move through the porousness of this time and space together, let us be especially mindful of how it opens a doorway onto the aftertimes for us. How what we bring here and what we find here can be taken with us through Good Friday, the great vigil, a glorious Easter morning, and into the world. Because I think for everybody, that's exactly what Jesus has always intended.